Welcome to Quillette Narrated. I'm your host, Greg Ellis, and in this podcast series, I read some of the best articles that have been published in Quillette. Please support Quillette by going to quillette.com forward slash help free thought live. All Quillette's content is free of charge, but monthly as well as once-off donations are greatly appreciated. All contributions help us bring you original content. In this episode of Quillette Narrated, I'll be reading How Due Process Fell Victim to Good Intentions, A Veteran Court Reporter Looks Back, written by Christy Blatchford. It was published in Quillette on July 14, 2019. The essay that follows is adapted from remarks delivered by the author upon receipt of the Justice Centre for Constitutional Freedom's George Jonas Freedom Award on June 14 in Toronto. I find it amusing that we're here, celebrating freedom, at a time when Canada's Federal Justice Committee unanimously has agreed to rewrite recent history. In the last week of May, Conservative MP Michael Cooper dared to quote three lines from New Zealand terrorist Brenton Tarrant's dreary manifesto in response to a bit of a hectoring from a Muslim witness who'd appeared before the committee, which was studying online hate. The witness was Faisal Khan Suri, the president of the Alberta Muslim Public Affairs Council, and among the things he said was this... We've seen a lot of recent tragedies happen across the world. In January 2017, the Quebec City mosque killer, Alexander Bissonnette, gunned down six Muslim men in execution style when he came into the mosque with two guns and fired more than 800 rounds. The evidence from Bissonnette's computer showed he repetitively sought content about anti-immigration, alt-right and conservative commentators, mass murderers, US President Donald Trump and the arrival of Muslim immigrants in Quebec. Surrey then went on, as did many other speakers, to mention the March 2019 terrorist attack in Christchurch, New Zealand, where 51 Muslims were murdered. After yet another speaker, Cooper told Surrey that he took great umbrage with his efforts to link conservatism with violent and extremist attacks, and that he should be ashamed. Then, he read into the record three lines from Tarrant's 74-page manifesto, in which Tarrant said, Conservatism is corporatism in disguise. I want no part of it and that the nation whose values most aligned with his own was the People's Republic of China. To judge by the reaction of his fellow committee members, you'd have thought Cooper had just relieved himself on the desk. I agree, he probably had overreacted to a pretty mild comment, but he's a conservative and probably takes such matters seriously. MPs from the left of centre Liberals and NDP sputtered with fury and the committee immediately went in camera. When they emerged, Cooper withdrew his comment that Surrey should be ashamed and the hearing proceeded. But a week later, the committee adopted a motion condemning Cooper for having been discriminatory, hurtful and disrespectful 
to Surrey, noting that he'd read from the Christchurch Attackers Manifesto, though hardly with approval, and resolved to expunge the attacker's name and the three lines Cooper had quoted. The Tarrant Manifesto is banned in New Zealand. This is ridiculous, I think. How can you know a thing if you're not allowed to name it? But the manifesto isn't banned in Canada yet, though Tarrant's name and words apparently are verbotum in our parliament. For voicing his opinion, Conservative leader Andrew Scheer kicked Cooper off the Justice Committee and he was also voluntold, as soldiers put it, to apologise again. Thus did a committee of the federal government literally rewrite history, just as Winston Smith did for the Ministry of Truth in Orwell's 1984. As Smith reminded himself as he went about his work, quote, nor was any item of news or any expression of opinion which conflicted with the needs of the moment ever allowed to remain on record. All history was a palimpsest, scraped clean and re-inscribed exactly as often as was necessary. Unquote. At another point he adds, Your name was removed from the registers. Every record of everything you had ever done was wiped out. Your one-time existence was denied and then forgotten. You were abolished, annihilated, vaporized was the usual word. And so perhaps begins that process for Michael Cooper. I cannot tell you how shocking I find this. Even though it's the logical result of a whole lot of things, I'm old enough to have witnessed firsthand as a veteran journalist. Perhaps the key thing, because it led to the current importance placed upon feelings, was the development of the victims' rights movement. Have you noticed how many people now rarely say, I think it rained, but rather, I feel like it rained? This began as many bad things do, with arguably noble intentions. Long ago, and I've been covering criminal trials since 1978, it is true that victims and their families were sometimes given short shrift by the Canadian justice system. Prosecutors would forget to tell a homicide victim's parents about the accused's court dates. Occasionally, relatives wouldn't be able to get a seat in a crowded courtroom. But these things didn't happen routinely, or even often. I was there. Generally speaking, no one is more aware of and more sensitive to a victim or a victim's family than a homicide cop. Most of those I know remember the birthdays of all their victims. But in the 80s, there emerged this idea that, as one victim's rights advocate put it at the time, the politicians long ago recognised the needs of criminals, but they forgot about us. A justice system that doesn't want fair treatment for both sides is not a fair system. The problem is, victims of crime were never meant to be one of the two sides. Justice in this country, as in most Western democracies, isn't supposed to be a matter between victim and perpetrator, but rather between state and perpetrator. 
Thus, it's State of New York versus Blatchford, or in Canada, Regina versus Blatchford. It's not Blatchford versus her poor victim. And trust me, I have a list of likely candidates. Of course, the broader societal interests of public safety and protection incorporate the narrower interests of those who have been hurt or damaged by crime. But traditionally, that's where the victim's role began and ended. That's as it should be. And that's what the rule of law, at its simplest, is. We all agree that we will not seek vengeance and take the law into our own hands. If you burn down my house, I will not burn down yours in retaliation and perhaps rape your wife for good measure. Instead, I will call the cops. The cops will investigate and you may be charged and at some point you may go on trial. But in 1989, the Canadian government passed the Victims' Bill of Rights and over the next decade, this being Canada, the provinces passed their own versions. All these bills really did was provide victims with the right to information about court appearances, release dates of offenders and so forth. But before you knew it, there was also something called the Victim Impact Statement, which is delivered at sentencing and allows a victim or a victim's family to talk publicly about their loss. These turned out to be just the first steps. In May 1995 came the trial of Ontario serial killer Paul Bernardo. I suppose if I were truly modern, I wouldn't name him either, but I'm not, so I will. I remember that trial like it was yesterday, and I could talk about it for days. But for these purposes, let me just say that it turned the notion of victims being an uninvolved third party on its ear. Bernardo was accused and convicted of genuinely terrible crimes. He was a serial rapist who moved on to murder, with his then-wife Carla Homolka at his side. They were co-stars in the deaths of three young women. Hamolka's own younger sister, Tammy, and teenagers Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French. Bernardo was way ahead of his time. Long before Tarrant live-streamed his slaughter in the Christchurch mosque, well before Luca Magnotta posted a video of his 2012 killing of student Jun Lin in Montreal, Bernardo taped his attacks on young girls. The trial of Homolka, which went first, was closed to the public and to the US press and was subject to so many publication bans that it was essentially held in secret. Then, at Bernardo's trial, the presiding judge, a lovely human being named Patrick Lesage, decided, at the behest of a lawyer representing the Mahaffey and French families, that the public and press wouldn't be able to see the videotapes that were the single most critical piece of evidence against Bernardo. This was because, the lawyer for the families said, if the tapes were played in public, the families would have to watch them too, which would violate their daughter's dignity and privacy rights. The families, through their lawyer Tim Danson, asked for formal intervenous status in the trial. Though he said he was doing it as an indulgence and not a right, Lesage granted it to them. But the rights of the victims were also expanded in another way at that trial. 
Because the videotapes originally were missed by the cops in their search of the Bernardo Homolka home, the government determined it needed Homolka as a witness against her former husband. And fair enough, for a time they did need her, and she was more than happy to oblige. Prosecutors duly lined up an array of experts to paint her as a victim of Bernardo herself. She was a battered spouse. She was the compliant victim of a sexual sadist. She had PTSD or traumatic amnesia. But six months before Bernardo's trial started, the tapes were belatedly found. And those tapes showed Homolka not as a victim but as Bernardo's accomplice, an eager, lip-licking participant in the sexual assaults of those three dead young women and several others. On tape, she seemed as perfectly capable of murder as her husband. The tape showed that she had uh, forgotten about some of the sexual assaults or, heaven forbid, lied about them. At least one police chief and one prosecutor wanted to breach her plea deal because of that, but there was no will to do that at the Ontario Attorney General's office. There, they had all bought into the vision of Carly Curls, as she called herself, the victim of a very bad man. In fact, Homolka was a long-time co-participant in Bernardo's rape and murder spree. Only in the end, and only then for about five minutes, was she his victim. And yet her plea deal, 12 years in jail for her involvement in three deaths, survived. And after serving every last day of it, she was freed in 2005. To this day, many people persist in seeing her as a victim. Just another sad victim of a toxic male. One of those people was the lawyer who represented her while she was still in prison, a Quebec woman who really believed in Hamolka's victimhood. Her name is Sylvie Bordelais, and she was a true believer. Years later, I learned that it was Bordelais's brother, Thierry, who married Hamolka in 2007. The Homolka as victim narrative did untold harm to the idea of gender equality in my view. If, no matter what a woman does, no matter how heinous her crimes, we persist in seeing her only as a victim of a man, we infantilize her. We aren't granting that she is as capable of the full spectrum of human behavior, good and bad, as are men. Fast forward almost a quarter century, and where are we now? For decades now, in each province, there has been some sort of assistance office for the victim witness. These are the soothers. They accompany every victim, but essentially in sexual assaults, and guard them like attack dogs. They are always patting shoulders and comforting. They are the handers out of tissues and the dispensers of hugs. A victim, especially a woman, must always be supported and, of course, believed. Case in point, the 2016 sexual assault trial of former CBC radio host Jeanne Gameshi, in which the three main accusers were revealed in cross-examination by lawyer Marie Henean to be duplicitous, self-serving complainants with big axes to grind against Gameshi. 
To varying degrees, they all had said that after they were allegedly attacked by Mr. Gameshi, they were so traumatised they either had nothing to do with him or made sure to see him only in public places where they would be safe. This is what they told Toronto police officers, who had conducted a sleepy Me Too-type investigation. It's also what this trio testified to in court, under oath, in examination-in-chief. Alas, and alack for them, it turns out that after the alleged attack, all three had variously sent Gameshi sexy pictures, or, in the case of one, given him a friendly hand job at her house after a dinner out. In the case of Lucy de Couter, she actively stalked him for months, wrote him an email in which she said, I want to fuck your brains out, and sent him flowers and a six-page handwritten love letter in which she said, I love your hands, the same hands that allegedly had slapped and choked her. Gameshi was acquitted properly and rightly and not on a technicality and not because his lawyer had played dirty but because his accusers had revealed themselves as utterly unreliable. They simply couldn't be believed. And yet, it was as if the verdict didn't matter or hadn't happened. The same day as the verdict was announced, women marched in at least two Canadian cities, Ottawa and Toronto, in support of their three sisters. On social media and in the mainstream press, people who had never come within a hair of that courtroom confidently raged against the verdict and the rebirth of old rape myths. Inspector Joan McKenna, then head of criminal investigations for the Ottawa Police Force, tweeted a picture of six unidentified women and the line, hashtag we believe, hashtag self-care at Ottawa Police and hashtag end the stigma. That tweet was duly retweeted by the chief of Ottawa Police, Charles Bordelot. The chief of a major police force apparently is an adherent of believing women, no matter what, even after they have been revealed as untruthful. Meanwhile, the leader of the federal NDP at the time, Thomas Mulcair, tweeted out, Today and every day, hashtag, I believe survivors. Gameshi was still being casually called a rapist and still is to this day. And the complainants themselves carried on as though nothing had happened. They continued to describe themselves as survivors. How do you survive a thing that didn't happen? Yet Gameshi, vilified and unemployable though he remains, was actually one of the lucky ones. The allegations against him went to court where they were tested and found woefully lacking. Consider other men, most of whom had no such opportunity to confront their accusers. These include John Furlong, the former boss of the 2010 Vancouver Olympics, former Liberal MPs Massimo Pesetti and Scott Andrews, whose political careers and reputations were ruined by allegations of serious personal misconduct. Politicians Patrick Brown, Kent Hur, Tony Clement and Rick Dystra. 
CTV television reporter Paul Bliss, the brilliant writer Stephen Galloway, and the impeccable TVO talk show host Steve Pikin, who was falsely accused of demanding sex by a perennial political candidate named Sarah Thompson. What they all have in common is that none of them had due process. None of them had the chance Jean Gameshi had. The allegations against them were handled by private investigations, most of which were kept secret. Some of them never even learned what the allegations were. Erin Weir, for God's sakes, was exiled from the federal NDP for being, and I'm not making this up, a close talker, as they said on Seinfeld. Yet they were done in, and in some cases had their careers vaporised, as Winston Smith put it. Even one of those who simply gave Gameshi a chance to tell his side of the story was fired. That was the fate of Ian Baruma, who was, until he dared, publish an essay by Gameshi, the editor of the New York Review of Books. It was no longer enough for the mob to denounce Gameshi, who, remember, was acquitted. Now, even those who would give him a voice must be mobbed too. Of course, a good part of the population, those of you in pants, can't really say anything about Me Too that isn't wholly supportive of the movement. Men have been pretty much silenced on this subject. And if they do want to speak, they first have to check their various privileges, their maleness, their whiteness if they are white, their heterosexuality if they are that, and, of course, the collective entitlements granted them because of their all-pervasive patriarchy. Honest to God, shoot me now. I've worked with men all my life, even wildly outnumbered by them as when I was one of half a dozen female sports writers in North America, and I can honestly never remember ever fretting or thinking about my purported safety. Anyway, I have a voice because I have breasts. So, even though I've been deemed a rape apologist for saying what I think, at least I am able to say it. Gameshi is luckier than Patrick Witt, who, as a 22-year-old undergrad at Yale, had an informal complaint filed against him by his ex-girlfriend with the then-brand-new university-wide Committee on Sexual Misconduct. We all know from the Lindsay Shepard story at Laurier University what bastions of fairness and freedom universities have become. First, Witt was summoned to a sort of mediation. He asked to bring a lawyer, but was told he couldn't. He asked that fact-finding be done so he could clear his name, but was told there's nothing to clear your name of. He demanded a formal complaint be lodged, but was told he couldn't initiate it, only his accuser could. And guess what? She didn't want to. And somehow... Despite the confidentiality that was supposed to surround this Kafka-esque process, word leaked out. Witt lost his chance at a Rhodes Scholarship after having been announced as a finalist. He'd been Yale's starting quarterback and had been invited to the National Football League Scouting Combine, an annual invitation-only showcase for the best college players. Guess what? He was un- invited.
Oh, and guess what? The New York Times somehow learned of the complaint against him and ran a story. Four years later, Witt was a student at Harvard Law School, which had just adopted a similar policy to Yale's. Witt wrote in the Boston Globe, If considered in the abstract, many might wonder how a policy with such a laudable aim could draw any serious objections, and I might well have been among them were it not for the fact that such a policy nearly ruined my life. As he put it, The complaint launched against me caused me and my family immense grief. And as a simple Google search of my name reveals, its malignant effects have not abated. It cost me my reputation and credibility, the opportunity to become a Rhodes Scholar, the full-time job offer I had worked so hard to attain, and the opportunity to achieve my childhood dream of playing in the NFL. I have had to address it with every prospective employer whom I've contacted, with every girl I've dated since, and even with Harvard Law School during my admission interview. He ended the piece with this, quote, The reader might note that I have yet to even address the question of whether I was innocent of the accusation. I was. But it does not come up at any point above for the same reason that it never came up in any of the actions taken against me, because by the nature of the proceedings that follow from these new policies... It doesn't matter. Unquote. As it turned out, it didn't matter for Gameshi either. The established narrative goes like this The complaining women had been abused by a callous system, the deck was stacked against them, they hadn't been colluding, heavens no, just merely talking as chicks do, they were just simple women who had been deeply wronged. For the record, the Gameshi accusers were 41, 33 and 32 respectively at the time. De Couture was a fairly successful actor and an Air Force captain. All three had been around the proverbial block a time or two. And now we have new amendments to Canada's criminal code that give complainants in sexual assault trials the automatic right to have counsel and to get standing in arguments about whether they can be questioned about their previous sexual history. That's a long way from the indulgence granted to the victims' families in the Bernardo trial all those years ago. Sexual assault trials across the country are on hold for months as these issues involving third parties are worked out. In the trial of former Afghan captive Joshua Boyle, for instance, the trial already has been sidelined for two months so his former wife's lawyer could appeal the judge's ruling that she could be asked a few questions about the couple's previous sexual history. The estranged wife, by the way, one Caitlin Coleman, testified via video from a different room, the so-called kiddie room, so she could feel safe and supported. A practice that used to be reserved for children of tender years testifying against their parents or abusers. In another case between former spouses, where the defence had launched a constitutional challenge against the new amendments, the wife testified with a support dog with her in the witness box.
We all talk a lot about the erosion of freedoms on campus, the lack of free expression on social media. These are worthy subjects. But the most important rights we have are those we need when we're charged with a crime and face the ultimate loss of freedom. Those are the right to a fair trial within a reasonable time, to be informed of the charges against you, not to be denied bail without reasonable cause, and the right to be presumed innocent. Thank you for listening. And remember, we don't charge anything for Quillette's content, but monthly as well as once-off donations are appreciated. Please support us by going to quillette.com forward slash help free thought live. All contributions, however small, help us bring you original content.